Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at a single director's body of work. Their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found among their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films might result when you take a look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. This time, we're going to be talking about the phantasmagorical work of American horror director Don Corscarelli. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And welcome, everyone, to our second Halloween episode. Yes, our initial look at horror was with Jeff Brightman of Fresh Perspective as we looked at the original Frankenstein director, James Whale. In this episode, we want to go explore a newer kind of horror. New being in air quotes because we're actually talking about the 70s. Now, if you've listened to us with any regularity, you know that we often bring up New Hollywood, that time in film history when the directors ran the show starting in the late 60s with uh, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, and the like. But I want to recommend a book that talks about how a parallel track of New Hollywood, just for horror movies, was also going on at the same time. The book is called Shock Value by Jason Zinneman. And it's a really cool look. And his thesis is that everything changed in 1968 with the release of Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, and Targets. That brought in a new kind of realism to horror the old days of vincent price cackling or the bright red blood of hammer would be replaced by something that would scare a new generation more graphic violence more realism a kind of evil that's less dismissible than vampires and frankenstein monsters and the like So you have films like Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Halloween, stuff like that, that raised the stakes and really changed the way horror movies were made from that point forward. Don Coscarelli comes in in the tail end of this and does something that I think is really cool which is that he takes the new freedom that these other masters have applied to horror films in the 70s, but also brings in the fun and kind of good cheer of the old universal horror films. 
and mm. creates, if, if you will, a, a Frankenstein monster of the two, where you have uh, a kind of film that is intense, as scary as the 70s horror, horror cycle could be, but also funny and enjoyable in a way that a, let's say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, while being a great thrill ride and an incredibly intense film, doesn't make you smile like I think Coscarelli's horror makes you smile. That new wave of horror that you're describing really opened up all sorts of avenues towards using the images uh, you're watching on your movie screen to scare you and disturb you. And it sends this impulse into all sorts of interesting directions. One of which that's, I think would be very cool in looking at when it comes to the work of Corscarelli is targets the first film by Peter Bogdanovich. As you talked on the universal horror side, Targets is explicitly about that. And it's about taking those fears and horror elements from those classic monster movies and features a, the, a, a monster icon in Boris Karloff in a starring role. Right. And it takes that, looks at what brings people to be scared by that, and puts it in a sharp contrast with a mass-murdering shooter whose motives remain ambiguous. So the chaotic and senseless violence is put up against the classic type of horror. And in addition, there is a neat trick because Bogdanovich was basically given this classic horror footage mm -hmm. and saying, well, let's see if you can make a, just a, basically an old school horror movie about it. And he did not. <laughs> he did not. One of the things that I found interesting as we are looking through Coscarelli's work is how many ways the horror in his movies are there for a different effect, a direction heretofore that I had not even noticed that a horror movie or a horror movie series can do. Right. And... Before we start getting into that phase of Don Coscarelli's career, we should note that Coscarelli started very much as an indie director and would be so for most of his career. His first two films weren't horror films at all. They were coming-of-age films, very low budget. Uh, the first one called Jim, the World's Greatest, which came out in 1975. Mm. And in the cast for that movie was... a. Uh, couple guys named uh, Reggie Bannister and Angus Scrim. That was followed in 1976 by Kenny and Company, another coming-of-age film, this one starring Michael Baldwin and Reggie Bannister. All these names will come up again very shortly. It's really cool to have those three names noted as part of Coscarelli's earliest efforts, because... One of the things that is most notable upon this guy's career is his particular loyalty to his friends from his earliest careers in filmmaking. The closest one I could say that comes to mind right now is the relationship between Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith in their series of films. And that brings us to 
Don Coscarelli's breakthrough, 1979's Phantasm. It's the story of two brothers, 13-year-old Mike and his older brother Jody. When one of their friends dies mysteriously, they start witnessing much that is strange and creepy at Morningside Cemetery. As Mike and Jody's ice cream truck driver buddy Reggie investigate matters, they come face to face with hooded dwarfs, a deadly flying sphere, and the tall man behind it all. So, like a lot of fans of certain cult movies, I absolutely adore Phantasm. Possibly unlike a lot of fans, though, that adoration comes from childhood trauma. Oh. You see, what happened was this. I was eight, watching TV like any eight-year-old might, and this commercial comes on that features fairly horrifying images to an eight-year-old mind, particularly creatures coming out from under one's bed. And finally, what I think remains one of the most awesome and uh, at the time traumatizing taglines I've ever heard from a film, which is, if this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. This threw eight-year-old Brad (laughs) into quite the tizzy. For the next number of months, I was uh, hoping that nothing was under my bed, in my closet. What was that shadow? It It was a whole thing. Now, when I got older and started to enjoy horror movies for what they were, this is then one I really wanted to seek out. The idea of experiencing became a myth almost to your young self. Right. Because this commercial only hinted at this larger world that was out there that I was too young to process. So then when I got old enough to process it, I watched it and was surprised to find that, yes, it was a scary movie. Yes, there were things that made me jump, but it was also... A really good-hearted film. It's a film that cares about a lot more than just scares. It's a film that is really funny at times. It's a film about friendships and brothers. And so Phantasm, in essence, was able to kind of open up horror movies to me in a way that I, I still have this great affection for. When I first saw Phantasm, I thought it was of a piece of Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a monster, really a very unique monster of these spheres that are dispatching people. 
Now, when I watch it for this podcast, however, those parts that you talk about are so amazing in how it's a series that from the very beginning seems to me to capture this kind of Midwestern sensibility. Mm -hmm. It's friendly. It has a way of showing the simple pleasures and appreciation of classic kinds of scares and fun elements that would get people to a drive-in. But the affection was built in on it. It wasn't a case like Friday the 13th where you're constantly trying to unnerve people Mm -hmm. by the sheer gore and mutilation you can put on display. The different parts of the movie are put in on service of this real sense of not just friendship, but family relations in a way that I hadn't really seen to this level until the Baba Duke just, <laughs> just came out two or three years ago. Well, one scene that really exemplifies this is the introduction of the Reggie character, played by Reggie Bannister. And basically, he just comes in to meet his, his, his buddy Jody, who's uh, sitting there with his guitar, as friends are wont to do, they just sit together and play a song. And we get to hear it, and we get to really quickly see the affection between these two guys. Mm-hmm. And that same kind of affection is really evident between uh, Jody and his uh, younger brother, Mike, and Mike being precocious uh, 13-year-old, riding his bike around, is just a fantastic kind of uh, surrogate for teens who are watching. And I think that's kind of an interesting focal point of the film because it's no accident that that had an effect on me from a child's point of view because the point of view that Phantasm is trafficking in is this kind of childlike perspective. The idea that the cemetery and the mausoleum and the undertaker would be the source of terror. The idea that these are nightmares that you might wake up from, but you're not convinced you're not still in, as the movie constantly plays with that idea. And so you have what, what I would consider horrors that are primal and imagery that's primal. And I think that's part of the way this works as a horror film, but like we were saying before, in these other movies, you often don't care who the victims are. They're just campers to be killed and they're dispatched and you don't give them a second thought. Here, our three main characters are so relatable that you're with them the entire time, not just through this movie, but throughout the series. Mm -hmm. Good point that their friendship travels along through the course of this series in a very remarkable way. Because while other series do have reboots or they maybe re-examine characters when they're older, I'm not really knowing of a series that has the characters actually progress in the way that ha- it happens in the Phantasm series. That initial appearance by Reggie 
is straight out of some sort of like either Errol Morris documentary or <laughs> Haxel Wexler kind of neo attempt of like late 60s neorealism. They're just, there's the story that's not important because these are two friends who are hanging out and they're jamming together, trying to solo over each other's so uh, the song they're trying to create and they're just having a, a good time. It doesn't have anything to do with the plot of Phantasm, but has a lot to do with the charm of Phantasm. And to your point about how it ties into this kid's fears, ties into a child's fears about funeral homes, this is where I'm thinking about the film. Because horror films at their best do tie into anxieties and concerns that people have in their, in their real lives. Mm -hmm. But whereas other films, such as how... The Exorcist traffics in the sense that this younger generation is out of control and beholden to these mysterious impulses that the older generation can't understand. That's sort of a meaning you can infer from looking at these actions. But what's interesting in Phantasm is it's actually direct. It is actually as direct about a kid's fears of funerals and the corpses that are within them and the mysterious job of the uh, mortician that it actually reminds me of the horror version of how freakish Santa Claus is in uh, the Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> if you really think about it, right. it's a pretty, it's a pretty fearsome thing to have a little kid sit on this person's lap or the clown and it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so phantasm works on this just explicitly. Yes. When you're a kid going to a funeral is a freaky occurrence. It's not subtext, it's the text, but it just heightens it to give it this kind of kid's perspective. And for this particular kid, his parents had died a year before, so this trauma was fresh in his mind. There is a constant game going on in the Phantasm movies of, is it or is it not a dream? So going to go into a little bit of spoilers with that, even though you can interpret it various ways, mm. because at the end of the movie, it seems as if he's lost his brother as well. And that that kind of real life trauma, if you want to read the terrors of the films as Michael's nightmares and kind of his processing of grief is an interesting way to look at it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very cool interpretation when you get the implication that his brother had not only died, but he died in a car crash. Because throughout the course of the movie, you're watching as the younger one looks up to the older one, but still sees the older one behaving in actions that can be judged reckless. He... Oh, always driving that car too fast. He has way too much enthusiasm for grabbing the nearest set of firearms, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always doing these, he's always disappearing and reappearing in places that the younger child doesn't understand where, where he went. That car actually has become part of the Phantasm cult. It's a, a 1971 Plymouth Cuda, which looks really cool in the film and is part of that 70s car culture and ties in with the whole growing up theme. 
Yeah, there's a fascinating scene where the younger one is working on the car. That's how they bond together. Mm-hmm. And then he hears something, and then the car's uh, jack falls down, and he is trapped under the weight of this vehicle. Right. So that's a that was a that's a really nice point that the movie makes. When you look at it in the mind of this is what a traumatized young teenager is exposed to the mechanisms, the ways that our society has to process people who's who have left this world and now their bodies remain and they need to be taken care of. It manages to take these common fears or common feelings and Chris Corelli successfully transcends them in an into an iconic status in two different ways. The first one for me that I was really surprised when I saw the film recently was when you see the actual mortuary itself, which are these incredibly long marble coated hallways with the with the various drawers through which the bodies are inlaid. Mm-hmm. When I had first seen Phantasm, I had never seen the style of horror that was popular in the 70s, mostly in Italy, called Giallo, most made notable by Mario Bava. And uh, I think the ultimate example is Dario Argento's Suspiria. So watching it today, I was really taken by once characters enter that, it becomes so stark and strange in how symmetrical it is or how deep these uh, hallways go. For a low-budget movie, it's a masterpiece of set design. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks so great at hinting at another realm beyond this kid's understanding. But I think the ultimate example of how this kid's sentiments get put into iconographic horror territory is in the figure of someone known as the tall man. The fears that a kid would have about this very strange figure who talks about these things that you would rather not want to acknowledge and makes it into one of the legendary figures in horror history. And that is due to this effective and amazing performance by Angus Scrimm who brings menace and humor into his performance at the same time, kind of predating the Freddy idea, Mm. except whereas Freddy eventually became silly. I don't think that happens here, but I do think you have that connection in Scrim's performance to the old universal monsters, to these broad strokes. There's nothing subtle about him going, boy, or any of his deliveries. He is inhabiting this threat that is real, but that is also incredibly entertaining. It's very cool to see how he manages to do a bit of a magic trick to make an imposing figure, a figure to induce fright, and a force that needs some serious firepower to be dealt with when he doesn't do anything. (laughs) The biggest thing that you can see for him is that he is able to carry a coffin all by himself. Right. So, yeah, okay, he's a strong guy. But what he's trafficking in 
is a kind of uncanny otherworldliness that was most well done by Boris Karloff as the as Frankenstein's monster. Yes. Karloff, however, had the benefit of this amazing makeup to give him that otherworldly feeling. Whereas the tall man is just a guy in a suit, but Angus Grimm somehow manages to make his very stride feel distressing because it's so purposeful. And the threat of the tall man is linked to these deadly spheres, these silver balls that shoot their way through the mausoleum. Horror fans sometimes talk about the kills in horror movies. And I gotta say that looking at it from this way, I think maybe the greatest kill I've ever seen in a horror film is the, is the ball in phantasm as this assistant to the tall man is holding Mike and Mike gets out of the way just in time for the ball to attach itself to this fellow's forehead, drill into it and to have all this blood. And we assume his brain squirt out uh, the other side of the silver ball. And then to put an explanation point on the terror of this moment when he falls we see his urine. Yeah. Uh, That's one that I was not expecting watching it today. I had not noticed the first time I saw it. (laughs) It That was one of the several things in Phantasm that I just found very, very unique uh, outside of the the exploitation studio of trauma films. Right. Well, the uh, MPAA also (laughs) took notice because they threatened to stamp an X rating on Phantasm just because of of that scene. Oh, that makes uh, sense. And through some negotiations, they managed to avoid it without making the cut. Okay. But it definitely is an unforgettable moment. And when we see the Silver Sphere later in this movie or in any of the sequels, that now has the baggage of this scene. We have an almost Pavlovian response now, knowing what these spheres can do that make it the perfect augmentation to the menace of the tall man. The spheres are really cool because unlike nearly every other monster, you don't know anything about them at first. Mm -hmm. They're just have no other features except reflecting the world they they fly through only to pop in some random incredibly sharp implements <laughs> and the very reason for why they drill or get the blood out of people is something the movie doesn't go and explain it's probably one of the most iconic because you can actually it's one of the monsters you can actually represent by a simple icon <laughs> right <laughs> and what's in a really cool touch is that they don't look like a fantasy or a conventional horror element. In fact, there's something that seems downright futuristic about them. And that's kind of just another level of brilliance to this film because we, we've talked about it as a human film. We've talked about it as a horror film. But 
it's also a science fiction film because what's revealed is that the tall man is a alien of sorts from another dimension. We get a brief look at this other dimension when our characters find a portal and it's just this great tease of this red alien world where all these uh, hooded dwarf creatures who have been uh, attacking our characters throughout are uh, marching along in a line. And we discover that what the tall man's scheme is, is to take the dead from our dimension and use them as slaves in his dimension. But in order to do so, he has to uh, shrink them down. Now, in a somewhat unfortunate coincidence, these guys kind of look like the Jawas from Star Wars. <laughs> but this was in production for quite some time. And so this was being made around the same time Star Wars was being made. So there was no copying. It was just a coincidence. Very rarely in a film have I seen so many disparate elements <laughs> consisting of the horror from the childhood fears and anxieties on the about the funeral process to this conceptual science fiction that when it's finally revealed by the way it's it's a like really stark hyper saturated white level that could almost be one of the rooms around 2001 mm -hmm. <laughs> the portal is great too just two silver rods so it's as abstract as the um, scenes of two guys hanging around playing music to each other, it, it feels neorealistic. And then the dwarfs are yet another element that don't quite match. Although when the but the science fiction does provide a nice explanation for why they are dwarfs. So, so that's kind of cool as a recontextualization. And they provide good scares. The dwarves will jump on you from anywhere, so you never know when one of those attacks are going to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It also leads to the other side of, I guess, this Midwestern sensibility I that I gather from the film, is that these people are treating the horror as not some sort of a mission, necessarily. Even in the family sense, it's not in the sense of of intent, oh, here's what our movie is really going to be about. Mm -hmm. It's more like, hey, it's cool to like look at how brothers interact. Mm -hmm. It's cool to race cars too fast down suburban streets. It's cool to have just these dwarves jump out from the shadows at you. And what would make for a cool kill for a silver ball to do? <laughs> And in two or three moments of the movie, there are things that explode way out of proportion to what, <laughs> what actually happens to it, to, to, to a way that I just feel, hey, who doesn't like a nice explosion? Well, particularly Don Coscarelli, because that's going to become kind of his version of the director's cameo. <laughs> he just, mm -hmm. I think he pretty much puts explosions in every single one of his films. Yeah. Because he can. <laughs> he can, and he just, right. So there's this sense of certain kinds of enjoyment you can get out of these mm -hmm. types of films, but in this kind of low-key, friendly mm -hmm. kind of manner, right. instead of some way of just pushing people's buttons. This easygoing nature, if you're on that frequency, then you it will help you carry along in the spirit of good feeling. But if you are not 
so inclined, not so attuned, might come across as a little bit of half-assing it. Like, the explosions are very much like, oh, wow, I wanted to see a hearse get blowed up real good. (laughs) And there is certain horror conventions that, if you've seen two or three of these slasher movies, you're familiar with, that Chris Corelli indulges in. Sure. I personally, if I never, ever see a person in a tense environment that decides it's a good idea to go to a guy who's hiding and reach out your hand (laughs) for them, instead of going, psst, it's me. You don't need to be scared. <laughs> I would love. I would love that. It happens a couple times, but the two most there's two moments that are just incredibly egregious for me. One of which is that, <laughs> oh, Reggie, you feel something's bad has happened to him, and then later in the movie, he just suddenly appears at the mortuary. He was nowhere near the mortuary <laughs> before, but even better, he goes and says, "Oh yeah, there was a couple of ladies who were held captive, <laughs> and I went and rescued all of them." And I just was like, wait a minute, that's somehow, now I wasn't hating the movie, but isn't that you're describing a more interesting movie that was happening? (laughs) (laughs) But the one that was the most unjustifiable is the pop-up scare. You all know the pop-up scare where something's thrown off from the side of the frame with a loud noise, and I've, I've seen some of the worst. Species had not only a pop-up squirrel and a pop-up bum... But this is the first movie I've ever seen which has a pop-up maid. The brothers go back to their house. They walk down a hallway. And their maid just startles them by coming out of a hallway. <laughs> a maid who is never seen again in the rest of the movie. They literally only put in this maid just to scare him in one scene. That yeah. is a terrible <laughs> amount of empl- employment record by this person. Yeah, it should be pointed out that Phantasm is so many things, mm-hmm. and it's also a B-movie. And as kind of this low-budget effort that is constantly playing with levels of reality and trafficking in so many different ideas, mm-hmm. it also is not above the jump scare. Right. And... I'm fine with that. Just because something, as I think this movie does, transcends its genre, doesn't mean it doesn't also get to indulge in it. Mm. There's definitely a sense where the movie and the filmmakers did not have pretensions upon any horror effect being beneath them. Mm -hmm. There was one moment where... It gets turned on its head, I think, in a really interesting way, because another common thing about when a monster threatens and a young child witnesses is that uh, no one believes him. But there is a fun moment where he's trying to tell his brother, and his brother doesn't believe him, doesn't believe him, and says, will you just look at this box? And when you see, when he sees it in a box, he very slowly closes the box and goes, okay, I believe you. <laughs> like, I may think you're just an impulsive little kid, but... I can't argue with what I just saw. <laughs> oh, look, w- once you see a moving finger with yellow blood, yep. y- you're you're going to believe a lot of things exactly. after that. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to wrap up the Phantasm discussion with an element that I think wonderfully ties all of this together, which is its iconic and great score from Fred Myron and Malcolm Seagrave. There is this repeated theme that in in its own way is is as catchy and memorable and menacing as uh, John Carpenter's Halloween theme. 
the Phantasm one is more choral, sort of a way as if you're in a funeral service, and but you're hearing the notes just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. That's at least the feeling I get out of, out of that score. Right. So at this point, you might ask, uh, where can Coscarelli go from here? Is he going to be a horror director? And it's very possible that he didn't want to be pigeonholed into just one genre, which leads us to his 1982 film, The Beastmaster. Fearing the prophecy that he would be killed by the king's son, the high priest of the ancient kingdom of Arak orders the boy sacrificed to their god, Ar. Transferred into a cow's womb, he's rescued and grows up a fierce warrior with the power to command animals. Along with a beautiful slave girl, the rightful heir to the throne, a black tiger, an eagle, and two ferrets, it's up to the Beastmaster to liberate the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to tell you, though, this is my least favorite Coscarelli film. And that may have to do with going from a genre that I have a deep appreciation to going to a genre that I have much less affection for. The Sword and Sandal tribute to the old Steve Reeves Hercules movies, something that I think would be done much better that same year with Conan the Barbarian, but is also done at some very poor levels with movies like Hawk the Slayer. (laughs) Yes, or The Outlaw of Gore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In fact, a great many from the Golan Globus (laughs) production And this is not the bottom of the barrel of that, but it's also got kind of this level of camp where you just can't take it seriously. Even though there was humor and phantasm, you're never not invested. It's never saying, oh, this is just a joke for you to not care about. But here, I think that's pretty much what he's saying is, is that, yeah, enjoy uh, the action scenes, but we're going to cast a guy, Mark Singer, who yeah. has no business playing a period role. <laughs> yeah. He had an effect when I was seeing Beastmaster that you had when you got your first experience of watching Chuck Norris films <laughs> from our Andrew Davis podcast. When you look at him and you just go, wow, you really can't show any emotion for anything in this movie, can you? When he has to cry, they very specific. <laughs> yeah. And this happens a number of times. Yeah. They just cut to a, a clearly fake tear that some prop person has placed on his cheek. Exactly. <laughs> and that is him crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. At least the Norris films just have Norris be angry, which he can do with his beard. <laughs> but unfortunately, 
singer's dar character. If he was just a big lummox whose only word was dar, that would work a lot better. But instead, he's tasked with having to display feelings of love mm-hmm. or loyalty or dedication or frustration and every single one of these things that singer is absolutely incapable of doing anything except standing spinning around spinning his sword around in a in an attempted cool motion and mishandling his sack of ferrets which is one of the weirdest things in the film the the most horrifying moment of this film for me was the first appearance of these two ferrets because I realized instantly that we are going to have an entire movie not of great beasts of the jungle but of these two ferrets allegedly cute popping up to do cute little ferret things throughout the entire movie mm-hmm. it has moments of people getting bloodied and a lot of its sensibility wants to be informed by the same kind of vulgar, dirty brutality of the Conan series. Except that it cuts to the ferrets and it's filmed like a Disney movie about those <laughs> for those fantastic ferrets. Right. If they literally cut to the super cut of just those scenes, be like, look at what those ferrets could do. They're, it's almost like a live action rendition of the Chip and Dale chipmunks from the old Disney cartoons. In fact, I believe one of the <laughs> one of the ferrets dispatches a villain. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I think I want to say that one of those incredibly fake tears is when Dar cries for his fallen ferret friend. Indeed. Now, to be fair, we also have a tiger, which was dyed black. Oh, (laughs) no. Shades of Lynx. Exactly. uh, Quote, unquote, uh, chimpanzee. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But the most inappropriate is that sack of ferrets. This movie, time and time again, just has these really, really unfortunate shots where where Singer is hanging off a ledge and this sack is just dangling between his legs. <laughs> yes. or, or or he would be in the middle he would be in the middle of a fight and then this sack would be very agitated as a result. And you're just like, why did you put that there, man? Why? Well, well he spends <laughs> the entire movie basically in a loincloth. Yeah. And what was actually unintentionally funny for me was later on in the movie when he has some allies mm. who who haven't really been fighting and now they get their chance to start fighting. Right. They just shed their robes and now they're in their loincloths, <laughs> which is this movie's version of we're ready to rumble. Right, right. <laughs> their, their Spartacus outfit is going to be this loincloth. <laughs> yeah, and I am particularly have a very weird feeling as I look at the playing the... Will Chamberlain from Conan the Destroyer role is John Amos. He was my favorite part. (laughs) He handled his role very effectively considering what he's asked to do. (laughs) (laughs) He was the only one in that cast who I thought was in a real movie. (laughs) Mark Singer was just lost. Tanya Roberts, beautiful woman, one of Charlie's Angels, not known for her acting skills, does not demonstrate any here. Rip Torn, yeah, who is known for his acting skills, is embarrassing. He is just so 
crazed, over the top, and incoherent in his villainy that apparently, and this was the actor's idea, he uh, insisted on wearing a gigantic false prosthetic nose to make him look like a bird. (laughs) It is a fun bit of comparison if you like actors slumming it and doing terrible renditions in a grade B movie schlock to compare his role with Jack Palance as an evil wizard in Outlaw of Hmm. (laughs) War. One thing in this movie's favor is something that is similar to the work of John Williams from Black Sunday in our previous podcast on John Frankenheimer, in that the score is trying mightily to get that kind of rousing fantasy action. It's trying, but I was actually very distracted by the score Mm. because it reminded me a little too much of the uh, initial television theme for Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) (laughs) I get there's a little of that, but in so many of these fight scenes or helicopter shots of them transversing the landscape, I've just seen the score just trying to get people to be energetic through its sheer effort, which is so much more borne out by the music that's playing more than any activity that you're looking on screen. We we should note that this is one of the two Coscarelli films that are full-on studio films. Mm. And Coscarelli himself has expressed some exasperation about the movie because apparently there was a lot of studio interference at every level and they insisted on putting in some poor special effects. Mm. And there are various aspects of the movie that are not the way uh, Coscarelli had envisioned them. Uh-huh. But something I think I've seen from both Beastmaster and in Phantasm is how a kid's perspective comes in. This is where Phantasm is what like a maybe an 11-year-old would be afraid of. A lot of Beastmaster, despite the kind of excessive bloodletting, mm-hmm. does come across like, oh, what would like a chipper 8-year-old think of a kind of <laughs> fantasy setting? It, it feels that kind of juvenile. Right, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, and... I do think that if one is a lot more into the genre than we are, then there's going to be a little bit more to appreciate. I mean, yeah. certainly I don't think any there's any way it's not going to be cheesy at times. Mm. But to be fair to the movie, the look of it does capture this kind of comic book vision of these kind of uh, sword and sandal epics. But it's really so offset by the cheese that I couldn't enjoy yeah, it as much. Uh, yeah, that's right. I think the final scene may sum up all those parts quite well as there's meant to be a triumphant romantic embrace that Singer does with Tanya Roberts's character. He shows his adoration for this woman he's went through so many adventures with by ever so slowly turning his torso 45 degrees <laughs> to the extent that he, you may want to dispense some oil in his joints like he's the Tin Man. And then as they embrace in what is just going to be a poor, going to say a poor shot choice, it cuts to his sack of ferrets where one of the ferrets fully extends to nuzzle the painted t- black tiger. I'm like, no, <laughs> why? <laughs> 
Why, Corscarelli, why? So it seems that Corscarelli ended up a little bit in the wilderness himself after Beastmaster because it was a six-year difference before he returned to the setting of his breakthrough film in Phantasm II in 1988. Having been rescued from the clutches of the tall man by Reggie, Mike ends up institutionalized for the next seven years. Meanwhile, a young woman named Liz has developed a psychic connection with Mike and is also haunted by visions of the tall man. Mike and Reggie then join forces with Liz to try and save her deceased grandmother from becoming a minion and destroy the mortuary's interdimensional portal. This is the second and last Cuscarelli film that will be produced by a major studio, Universal, and there was studio interference, the most prominent of which is that they forced Cuscarelli to choose between his two leads as to which one he would allow to remain in the film and which one would be replaced by a studio-approved uh, up-and-coming movie star. And as it happened, Coscarelli wanted to keep Reggie Bannister. Mike Baldwin was let go for this edition, replaced by James LaGrosse. And James LaGrosse is one of the bigger elements to put this movie several steps downward. Because he is very effective at giving me kind of pandering that I have not felt <laughs> since I saw the young Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars Episode One. Never has the idea of reanimating the dead been unfortunately put to such apt use by Universal Studios in Phantasm in the sense that it's very clear to me that Evil Dead 2, which had come out the previous year, they felt, oh yeah, we have our own Evil Dead. We can make our own Evil Dead. And what we need is a vacant-eyed pretty boy to take the place of the young character from the original <laughs> Phantasm. And that is this suffocating sense that LeGrosse delivers. Well, I think it's only fair that... Coscarelli borrows from uh, the Evil Dead series because the Evil Dead series also borrowed from the original Phantasm, mostly in its use of humor, which, as mentioned before, was something that was very much a change of pace for horror when Phantasm came out. But thanks to that movie and what Sam Raimi was doing, it became something that was more acceptable and regular in uh, horror films. 
Now, okay, Legrasse is a step down. I didn't love his casting. Apparently, Brad Pitt uh, was originally trying out for that role. Having said that, he doesn't ruin the film for me. I, I mean, it's definitely a little distracting that they switched mics on us. But as Mike becomes a little less important, Reggie Bannister gets a chance to really shine. And what's going to happen with the Phantasm sequels is slowly but surely the focus is going to shift to the Reggie character. And it's a great choice because he has this very regular guy, unique vibe. He's the ice cream man who is just this genial kind of regular guy bald with a ponytail and always with a sense of humor about him. As the movies go on, we also find out that he somewhat fancies himself a ladies man, uh, unjustifiably. (laughs) (laughs) But what also happens is he, because he's so unlikely, it's fun to watch him step into the role as hero of the series. It's a very fun comparison to see how his role looks in relation to Bruce Campbell's Ash. Mm -hmm. They're both characters who are very much one step behind (laughs) trying to get a grasp of how even we in his audience are one step behind of grasping the strange goings on of the movies that they're in. But whereas Ash is a rambunctious young adult from his very first appearance, he's already a guy kind of over the hill. <laughs> right? <laughs> and because he's basically rides an ice cream truck around, and he comes across to me as sort of maybe one of the um, people left behind by the peace and love generation. <laughs> uh, perhaps he's had a little chemical in- imbibement too many. Perhaps, but he also brings heart to the role. I, I I like Reggie. Even when Reggie's being obnoxious and doing things I don't like, I still like Reggie. Yeah, he does a fair amount of things that come across as uh, quite disagreeable in this one as opposed to his the earlier film. Most notably when they pick up a female hitchhiker... And him and the gross have a discussion as to, well, do we really want to bring her in danger? And he points out, look, have you seen what she looks like? And plus, we're really, really lonely. (laughs) Oh, no, man. (laughs) Plus, this is something that would come very, very close to getting you arrested by engaging in this kind of conversation these days. But you don't but he feel- always gets his comeuppance in these encounters as well, because half the time that he's seducing a woman, she ends up being a monster anyway. <laughs> right, right. A- another trait that him and Ash can't catch a break. Can't catch a break. <laughs> no, there's some fundamental likability to Reggie Bannister's character that makes you sort of feel for him in maybe a Ralph cramden kind of way, <laughs> in that, he, look, he's a guy who's just put in this really unfortunate situation, and and... He's not, and he will admit that he's not the most, the smartest person or the most capable gunsmith or so on. Though they do do the Evil Dead thing of making the guy give a badass weapon, but it's such a low key badass weapon. Whereas, whereas, what did it say? Four barreled shotgun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, whereas, like, the idea for a chainsaw for a hand is just wrong and is so just completely. 
inspired in how dementedly weird that is. Mm-hmm. The main badass weapon in in this movie comes from what it seems like two guys who are hanging on a porch in between writing songs on their guitars that go, hey, you know what would be better than a two-barrel uh, shotgun? <laughs> a three-barrel shotgun? No, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, it kind of has a fun shape to it, but very notably, it's used once, right. and then he throws it away. <laughs> so, which is unfortunate. That's This is kind of one of the things I really caused me to really, really, really dislike this movie. I straight up hate it. Wow. And it was because that sent that easygoing nature that we felt from the first movie, it really infects the plot to an extent that reminds me of, of a scene from Mystery Science Theater where they, they made themselves a song about a film called Invasion of the Eye Creatures. These monsters who, when you freeze the frame, you clearly see they are wearing tennis shoes. <laughs> <laughs> to which they say, they just didn't care. They so just didn't care. What what's funny is not only do I disagree with your assessment of it uh, as a bad movie, which by the way doesn't mean I think it's anything anywhere near the quality of the first movie, but I also kind of disagree with the direction that that you're identifying it as going, which is too easygoing and too lackadaisical. When what I see happening is it's actually being streamlined and all the complexities and varied genres and insanity of the first movie is focusing in on action horror. And so it becomes for me, this movie that may be less creative, but it's got this energy to it that I appreciate and even though it's working on a, a less ambitious level, I think the level it, it is going for, which is just to emphasize the action, to emphasize the gore a little more and some of the shock scenes, some of the special effects, mm-hmm. still works for me on that level. And that level for me just brings it dangerously close to what I think is the elements I like the least of the other series of well-known horror monsters from about that era where it's so becomes incredibly obvious that they don't care about the story in their rush to provide the shock value and the quote-unquote quality kills and what Mm -hmm. have you they are very creative as the spheres make their reappearance and they find a whole set of new implements right but these implements are used upon the most loyal undertaker assistant of all time (laughs) as it's never really established why he's helping out the tall man in his dealings or if he knows anything but it seems to me that he this actor's main purpose is that he's a contortionist right up to the level of bruce campbell when the hand possesses him from evil dead (laughs) because when the ball just invades his body and works his way through his uh gastrointestinal system this guy's jerk herking and jerking away just like uh bruce campbell did so effectively in raimi's film but why him he's only there to do that and his other assistant is maybe even arguably even worse because they kidnap the Liz character Mm -hmm. and there's a whole sequence where she's almost put into a crematorium 
which is exactly counter to any reason they would have kidnapped her in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> complete, it makes absolutely no sense to have that, except, of course, have a moment where she turns the tables and, <laughs> and somebody else gets cremated who right. didn't really want to be there. <laughs> and so the movie d- does this kind of over and over where characters just simply appear and the right moment to get an effective scare or a gory kill and when when Liz tries to escape, she falls into a grave where she's beset upon by what looks to be a horrible grave digger wearing an evil mask. But it turns out to be James Lagrosse. Why is he there? How did he find her? Why in, why is he scaring her? What there is no point in that except to just go make a cheap scare. And that's what I'm saying. This is dollar store cheap stuff that I'm seeing. It's definitely in the realm of kind of the horror, the horror movie default mode of the eighties. Hmm. So we can't really compare it to really anything else in the series because due to the studio interference, they basically said no more dream sequences, no more. Is it real or is it not? Mm-hmm. No more mythology. Mm-hmm. We're going to take what we have and run with it on a purely adrenaline level. And on that level, for me, it worked. One aspect that I want to note about the movie, which I did find interesting, was over on the margins. Sometimes it's said that it's not the destination, but it's the journey. Mm -hmm. And here I do find something interesting about it, because both... Reggie and Mike are on this mission to stop the tall man, but the movie makes an effort to show that they go on this really long road trip type truck to get there. And as they keep traveling, this movie, which you think you get the impression it's set in the current time it was made Mm -hmm. instead starts getting a little post-apocalyptic as these towns start getting deserted and, bereft of the human presence just just a little bit and what this mainly does i think is set up the sequels that move on from here Mm -hmm. uh another thing that it continues now is is a tradition of phantasm that i quite enjoy is to end each movie on a cliffhanger Often a cliffhanger in which uh, somebody is uh, grabbed and dragged through broken glass. Yes, that's right. Well, they both, well, both Phantasm and Phantasm Two end on exactly the same way. And while the first one sort of both does and doesn't make sense in a result of like a nightmare kind of logic, mm-hmm. in the second one, while it makes absolutely no sense since they're being pulled out of the window of a hearse which the movie has taken great pains to show that they're now captured by the right. man and as part of his mission thereby having them yanked out of the damn car is exactly the exactly what should not be happening to them however in a very really weird way i really dug that part and i think why is it's so formal to me it's so interesting that like this is a, mo- a specific thing that is going to happen in his movie that Corscarelli insists on. Right. 
he's so easygoing on everything else that I think it's kind of bizarrely and maybe even perversely cool that no matter what's in my movie, some dude's going to get yanked through a freaking <laughs> square portal, right. pulled out into the black and disappear into the darkness. Mm-hmm. I do kind of really like that in a, in a strange way. <laughs> and I just need to add that, again, I think Angus Scrim delivers he actually has one of the best lines of the series Mm -hmm. in this one when he goes you think when you die you go to heaven no you go to me that's right (laughs) and his final line however inappropriately located uh was great it's also i believe was in the trailer right (laughs) this is just a dream it's just a dream a sliding window panel no it's not. Although a little trivia, they shot that line in a different context, in a different location for the trailer, so oh. that they wouldn't give away the ending. Oh, nice. Nice. So, Al, if you thought that Coscarelli was kind of easygoing directing Phantasm 2, that might be much more the case for his next film, Survival Quest, in 1989. <laughs> We follow the participants of Survival Quest, a sort of adventure camp for adults, as they learn life lessons and character-building skills through training in the wilderness of California's Sierra Madre Mountains. Unfortunately, another group in the wilds are being trained as kill-or-be-killed survivalists, and they are heavily armed. This is a multiple-casting coup of... People who would go on to do greater and greater things. The guy heading this survival quest is Lance Hendrickson, and his leathered appearance does give him a gigantic amount of authenticity as a guy who has lived among the woods for decades. We also have Dermot Mulroney as a convict. Catherine Keener in a very early role uh, as a divorcee. Uh, Comedian Paul Provenza's in the film. And we even get a cameo by Reggie Bannister. Mm -hmm. But my reaction to this film is basically, it was pleasant. Mm. And I think that's pretty much due to the cast. I think he's collected a group of people, no longer his childhood friends like in Phantasm, but professional actors that have this kind of relaxed chemistry to each other it's it's so relaxed that the actual threat of the movie doesn't happen until the last half hour of it until then it's basically them interacting getting to know each other doing trust exercises hiking in the wilderness the mountain setting is gorgeous and gorgeously filmed but there's a such a lack of urgency that I, I was thinking of many times throughout the movie is why did they make this movie? Why is this movie here? There, there seems very little point to it, mm-hmm. but then unlike a lot of movies where I might say that 
where my urge is to turn it off and stop watching, I'm more like, but this is kind of fun watching these guys hang out and do their thing. It's all right. I was very taken by the young Catherine Keener in what is the closest thing to an arc, a successful arc in the course of the movie. One that I feel is brought about entirely by her acting. Mm -hmm. She delivers this sense of trepidation earlier in the movie. And as the movie progresses, she gets more and more confident and more and more in charge to be the badass Catherine Keener that we've seen through so many uh, of her other noteworthy films right. from thenceforward. <laughs> uh, Dermot Mulrooney is a little bit less successful. He plays a young convict on parole, and he unfortunately comes across to me as someone who is Vincent Spano with <laughs> maybe... 25% more charisma right. to, to it. But as the movie leads to an incredibly obvious attempt at a romantic connection between him and another character of the survival quest, you're more on seeing the plot machinations shove these two characters together more than any sort of intrinsic chemistry. Right, His being two. a convict is kind of the movie's biggest attempt at conflict until the uh, events of the climax are set into motion mm -hmm. because people are like, Oh, do we, should we trust him? Is he, what's wrong with this guy? Is he dangerous? Is, turns right. out, no, he's basically just a nice guy. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Right, right. That they have their arguments and, <laughs> but they'll, they'll settle them because they want this quest adventure to continue. I think the most successful element, though, is, is Lance Hendrickson's performance, because he really does seem to embody these leadership qualities that his, his character has. He's kind of like this grizzled Yoda, yes. who, who I guess is already grizzled, but okay. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> but, but, swampy. But he was absolutely, but yeah, but he was just believable. We could buy all these people in these situations. Now, the other element that is a little more forced is this alternate gang of these uh you must be talking about the uh the cobra kai of uh woodland survivalists <laughs> who all write down to their matching black vests and missions to succeed at all costs and never surrender <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we keep cutting to this group yeah. of clowns <laughs> and you know that there's going to be a battle. You know they're going to come into conflict. But what you don't know is that it's going to take the whole movie for this to happen. Yes. And then when it does happen, it's, 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 it's pretty lame, except for when <laughs> both uh, Hendrickson and the leader of the Cobra Kai gang... Played by Mark Ralston, yeah. Yes, are injured and stranded. And they have some nice scenes together. But then as far as the actual Lord of the Flies-esque attempts for the Cobra Kai gang to kill our beloved campers, that's where the movie pretty much just falls apart and you're missing the more genial hiking scenes. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. Now, you say about, like, who is this movie made for, and I feel in a similar way about that because those two tones don't really match and they're mixed together in a very odd way because it's so genial and generically likable to watch these people on their quest 
yet every so often you get a shot of brutal violence or an <laughs> F-bomb or a bit of nudity, which struck me as very, very odd because I'm looking at this film thinking this is really, would really, really struggle to be a PG-13 movie mm-hmm. because among other things, its lessons are so childlike in its their simplicity of basically we should be friends and help each other because this is how we'll do better is if we help each other. Right, it's right. It's that kind of <laughs> sentiment, which is a worthwhile sentiment, but then imagine that interpersed with somebody getting shot in the chest. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Why is it turning into Death Wish all of a sudden in my, in, in my de- delightful um, Disney-esque trek through the forest? <laughs> so it's, it's super weird how those elements just re- re- reappear. <laughs> Although, coming from the guy who made the R-rated horror film from a child's point of view. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which also has in common that you now you may wonder how a film where everyone is in the woods would be able to have any sort of gigantic fireball explosion yet this movie finds a way indeed (laughs) (laughs) and as and as you see a character flying with reggie banister as they see the triumphant survivors of this horrible explosion (laughs) Uh, the music is swelling. I think it's another case where the music is also pulling in a lot of good duty towards, sure. towards helping us give this inspiration that we might mm-hmm. not necessarily find from the story. But as the music is swelling and they're looking down on these people, whereas you're meant to say, well, I'm glad that these guys did well. When the practical implications are... Let's use this plane to get the hell out of here so no one finds out about the awful things we put these guys through. <laughs> well, this will be uh, Don Coscarelli's last attempt at a non-horror film. He's going to be pretty focused in genre from this point forward. Mm-hmm. And in a way that I find a little similar to how Evil Dead 2 was sort of an expansion on Evil the original Evil Dead... I think a similar um, uh, treatment was at work in his next film, Phantasm III, Lord of the Dead, from 1994. Now let me see you, baby, rockin' soft and slow. In this one, Mike and Reggie cannot escape the ever-growing grasp of the tall man, who has robbed more and more graveyards to harvest the dead as his army. This time they're joined by a young lad named Tim, who is quite good with booby traps, as well as a tough and well-armed woman named Rocky. Mike's brother Jody also returns, but he is taking quite a different form. (laughs) Well, Phantasm 2 made very little money. So Universal was pretty much done with this. They did not make this film, but they did distribute it. So Coscarelli had his creative authority back. And the first thing he did with it is to bring Michael Baldwin back Mm -hmm. as Mike. And it's such an interesting thing to see him because 
when you see him in the original Phantasm, and here, if I was to go gauge him as an actor, I guess I wouldn't really grade him as high in a performance. But yet, the fact that it's been a decade plus, and the sensibility he had as a young child in the earlier movie actually comes across in an older form. That feeling does come across on film. As he grows older, he, he's, uh, he's got uh, a very haggard look to him. The kind of wide-eyed innocence of, of Mike as a kid is gone. Mm. But it makes sense to be replaced like this because of all he's been through. And one thing I love about this series is that there's always consequences. Mike doesn't go through all this unscathed. He wakes up from a coma at the yeah. beginning of this film. But you see kind of in Mike's eyes this haunted look because he knows that it's not a coincidence that he's constantly facing the tall man. This is the movie that really expands the mythology of the Phantasm series, and it becomes clear that, that Mike is an integral part of the tall man's plan. It also contrasts him wonderfully with Reggie's devil-may-care attitude that he is so haunted. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's something about that aspect of, of A. Michael Baldwin's presence in this movie that makes it really intriguing to look at from Phantasm 1 through Phantasm 3. Whereas James LeGrosse looked like he was either ready to pose for a Calvin Klein ad or alternately jump on a skateboard to do something to the extreme. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that he has this sort of haunted quality in his later person in Phantasm 3 that actually fits really, really well with what it would feel like for a young child to have had a persona of the tall man kept you on edge for over a decade, yes, you would look and you would give off this emotional feeling that his character gives off in Phantasm 3. It's some weird sense of truthfulness that comes out from a fun-type horror series. Right, and uh, part of the fun is adding some new characters... Just as the first one had a kid, we have a, a brand new kid uh, as part of it yeah. who is uh, introduced as kind of a murderous version of uh, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Yeah, otherwise has... known as Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. <laughs> exactly. But, but here's the thing. If this kid had starred in Home Alone and had done these kind of yeah. weaponry that does this kind of yeah. damage, yeah. I would have been on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he is some unholy combination of the impishness of Macaulay Culkin's character combined with all the booby traps that Charles Bronson set up in Death Wish 3. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like that, like that compare, ironically, it's now really uh, similar to Survival Quest that way in that hey, he comes across as a really pleasant, plucky kid, but then his contraptions are so brutal. Right. And and the, the context is his family is gone. The tall man and his minions have ravaged the countryside. Mm -hmm. And so he's living alone. And so when these motley set of criminals uh, yeah. bring Reggie into, into the house and then they, they get dispatched in, in quite entertaining ways, yes. I have to say, yeah. it kind of brings uh, another level of, of humor to the series. 
as does Rocky, played by uh, Gloria Lynn Henry, who uh, seems kind of out of James Cameron's uh, Aliens movie. And what's fun with that is, could there be anyone we would expect there to be less chemistry with with Reggie <laughs> than this woman? But that does not stop Reggie from hitting on her. <laughs> Re- Reggie's such a strange surrogate, <laughs> surrogate to go through. <laughs> and here is where his path and Ash's path diverge a little bit in that there is this just acknowledgement of just how fundamentally <laughs> inferior he is <laughs> on this. But he's just, but he's still so impetuous and just up on just giving it a shot. Well, it's great because basically he's saving the world. This yeah. is like the role he's in, but he still is like, what's the guy got to do to get laid? <laughs> and yeah, so he's like, right, got, he's got a right. couple, he's got a few different goals, but he can, right. he can, t- he takes them on at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just part of saving the world and, and kicking ass against aliens from another dimension just is just part of his priority list. There's other <laughs> stuff that, hey, look, a guy's just got to do what a guy's got to do. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking on this world, I think Coscarelli got a little more free vein to explore on expanding the mythology of the spheres, the role of the tall man, the mm-hmm. dimensions from which he sprang from. And allows to return these multiple levels of reality. So it gets back some of the dreamlike quality that the second one was noticeably absent. Right. And I do think it's the better film. And you do get a lot more hints at the nature of the tall man and the nature of the spheres, which it turns out are housing the brains of his victims that he uh, turns into dwarf slaves. Mm -hmm. I do find it kind of cute that Jody, the older brother, gets turned into a sphere, albeit a black one. Right. Well, one that and one that comes into conflict. Mm-hmm. With the tall man, although the, the tall man rules the spears, so mm-hmm. Jody is a little outmatched. Yeah, <laughs> I do have to admit, I, I get a chuckle out of the notion that, that the brains had been harvested due to how very, very unintelligently the spheres behave. <laughs> so, so often they're so easily able to bounce around and just impale and start drilling through the wrong person. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> The spheres are involved in, I think, one of the most potent images in the film, which happens at the end, where we see the tall man, and then we see not one, but what looks like hundreds of spheres gathering up at the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And the uh, cliffhanger here involves those spheres trapping Reggie. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Exactly. Once again, as him is uh, trying to aim a pistol at these spheres... Some monsters yank him from a square portal off into the distance, and then a sharp cut to the credits. It is a phantasm movie. <laughs> so I'd just like to point out, as kind of a general thing, how surprising it is for a series that gets to the point where it's pretty much direct-to-video mm-hmm. by the time you reach Phantasm Three, to, while not being classics at the level of the original 
at least I think we can agree, starting with three, maintain the spirit and quality of a singular filmmaker. Because there are so many horror franchises that started in the 80s, from Halloween to Nightmare on Elm Street to Friday the 13th. And the pattern is is generally the first one is the ultimate version, and then it starts to get a little sketchy the, the further drop-off is incredibly right, steep. The yes. further into sequels you go. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when I first watched all of these in a row, just how they held up. Mm-hmm. And while not matching the first one, kept expanding the mythology, kept giving you characters to root for, and maintaining an effectiveness over a series of five movies. Yeah, I think one of the things that just become noticeable even in these first three films is how, while they may explore different areas upon these moments of the tall man and the spheres and the mortuary hallways and so forth, the tone is more even. It's it, or, And the approach towards the characters is more even. Mm-hmm. So many of these even beloved horror classic series start off with you maybe caring for the characters, but if you ever did, then by the time of the third movie, it's already been descended to them being basically cannon fodder for the monster to dispatch in ever more elaborate ways. Right. But in this series, that sensibility that Phantasm One had of just going with the flow helps aid it for when you have these elements of three. Like, fighting up a sphere of a nunchuck is not a significantly different approach as a red-eyed monster, which appears in the earlier Phantasm. Mm-hmm. But it's also tied in on this frequency of sympathy towards these three main characters. They cannot help but be themselves. <laughs> One of them has changed. One of them stays kind of the same in a very positive way. And the threat <laughs> posed by the tall man is not changed, but is uh, there's a different appreciation for it because he is grooming the Michael character. So that sense of like the, the oppressive mentor mm-hmm. is now turned in a new direction, but involving right. people who we want to see how things end up. Exactly. And we will see where that direction takes them. In the next film of the series, Phantasm for Oblivion. Let's have a ball and a biscuit, sugar. And take our sweet little time about it. Let's have a ball, girl. And take our sweet little time about it. Tell everybody in the place to just get out And we'll get clean together And I'll find me a soapbox where I can shout it As the battle with the tall man continues, Mike and Reggie learn more dark secrets about his diabolical plans and origins. Mike travels back in time to meet the kindly old Jebediah Morningside, who first discovers the portal, while Reggie's confrontation with the tall man 
reveals the extent of his interdimensional reach. Now, here we get to a part where maybe, by accident, Corscarelli traffics in a story across time. A story with the depth of what the years and the mileage of years can provide for people. And he expands on what does it mean for these characters that we, from such a distance, and especially expressly about looking back. This is the film that is very much the anti-Phantasm 2. This is the movie that's just about all mythology and all about growing the story, solving some mysteries, presenting other mysteries, and it's doing it on a micro-budget. And you could tell from Phantasm 3 to Phantasm 4 that there's a lot less money to work with. That is seen on the screen. But there aren't less ideas. And probably no idea for me is more fun in this film than watching Angus Scrim play the kindly old predecessor to the tall man, right. Jebediah Morningside, who if, you, who, if you've ever seen Angus Scrim give interviews on the extras of the uh, DVDs, he really does seem to be the coolest, nicest old guy there is. Nothing further from his character. So here you get to see Mike interact with this version of the character, and also because he's been experimenting with these interdimensional portals, get to see just how the tall man was formed as he leaves as Jebediah and returns as the tall man. There was a tiny, tiny hint, which is fascinating considering it was hinted across the decades between the making of Phantasm 1 and Phantasm 4. Mm -hmm. of almost entirely what Phantasm 4 is really about. There's a moment in the original movie where young Mike is holding a photograph of a horse-drawn hearse yes. by what he thinks is the tall man and what, what may be, because as you see him holding this picture, the image inside the photograph zooms in to have the tall man turn and cast a horrid glance right at him. Mm-hmm. But that is the subject of part four. It's about looking into the past and this particular kind of sister feeling to nostalgia upon what does it mean to go through the past or to bring the past back to life. It has these feelings of regret that are most noted for from films such as Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Hmm. Yes. I'm making a Phantasm to Vertigo comparison. Uh, I'm, because... I'm, all, I'm on board. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that part of the reason that Vertigo is such a magnificent film is it is about the inability for you to go and change the past, yet your earnest desire for things to turn out differently. Mm -hmm. And whereas it does this in a romantic way, we're seeing the version on an incredibly low-budget genre-type way, the same feelings right. and once again it's that presence from a michael baldwin and even from a 
older but no less imposing Angus Scrim and an older but still gopher broke like Reggie Bannister Mm -hmm. that get you to feel the mileage that they've gone through. And you feel it even more distinctly by the end of the film because of something that came in due to budgetary problems, literally not having the money to finish a full-length film the way they wanted to. Exactly. But instead utilizing deleted footage that was cut from the original 1979 Phantasm and reappropriating it here. So we get scenes of young Michael, Reggie, and Jody from back in the day that's very creatively inserted into this story, which thematically fits to what you were talking about, about looking back and nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's usually a trope for low-budget films as a way of saving funding to just use earlier footage. The most egregious example, I would say, would be in the film Nemesis 3, which contains, I believe, a grand total of 25% original footage that was not (laughs) shown from Nemesis 2. But here it's placed in such a great manner to deliver like gangbusters on the themes of what the story is trying to say. Right. And you really feel for these people interacting and remembering their younger selves. Much like the older Michael has been more beaten down by the tensions that have plagued him throughout the course of his character's trek through these films... It does the reverse when you see Jebediah Morningside, and he is as pleasant and innocent in his own way Mm -hmm. as the young kid from the first Phantasm was. And a great touch that he's the guy that the uh, cemetery was named after. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's some very cool expansion of the mythology in that you kind of get a little bit more of an idea of why every time they kill the tall man... It doesn't really take. Right. Because here you literally see the tall man get killed and another tall man enter through the portal, mm-hmm. which raises the idea of not just one uh, one extra dimension, but infinite extra dimensions with infinite tall men. It's sort of like maybe in Michael's life, there's always going to be a tall man. Right. And... I don't want to tie it too explicitly to, like, abused people, but I do get a sense that, like, if you've gone through a traumatic incident, is, in a weird way, he's the world's most best-dressed trigger. (laughs) And, And that's made visual when we find out that Mike has a sphere in his head. Mm hmm That bit of imagery is mind blowing. I kind of like how each movie kind of raises the stakes on what these spheres are right. and what what they can do. I mean, it started in the first movie. It was actually uh, conceived because Coscarelli had a nightmare about a sphere chasing him around. Mm-hmm. And now that nightmare has become all this. Yeah. But this idea that the sphere is becoming part of him hits home on that level. At the same time, 
the Phantasm series never gets too serious because then you go back to Reggie who confronts the tall man directly in this film and you see that unlike Mike who the tall man has this keen interest in Reggie he kind of views as an amusement yeah. and it calls him the little man and uh, yeah. just kind of looks at it, I will play with you as long as I please <laughs> For some reason, when we're, uh, it calls to mind the expression of Sterling Hayden's face at the end of Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Just that set in his jaw about, yeah, the world's going to tell me the, <laughs> where the hell I'm located at. But Reggie, again, the Cramden influence is strong in him because he's still plucky and he's still going despite the fact mm-hmm. that the tall man and by extension all the horrible parts of these worlds that he's they're traveling through is treating him as in effect a plaything. well it puts into perspective just how kind of one-sided this battle might be right one of the frustrations or charms or maybe both of the series is that there is a lot that remains unresolved Now, much of that has to do with the fact that this low-budget film was not the film Coscarelli was hoping to make. Mm. In fact, Roger Avery, who is best known for uh, having partnered with Quentin Tarantino on his earlier films. Co-writing Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, though there's no credit for him in Pulp Fiction. Right. Yeah. At Tarantino. But what he wrote also was a treatment for a Phantasm sequel. It was going to be called, at one point, uh, Phantasm 1999 AD, or Phantasm's End. And this was going to be the big-budget finale that was going to take this story home. And Coscarelli loved it, and he wanted to film it, but there was just no money. It's fascinating to think what this could have been. What I really hope happens is one day somebody makes a comic book out of this script, Hmm. because I think that would be a fascinating read. As it is, I like where the series goes, but... They're hampered by their budget, and to have seen a big-budget grand finale of this would have been something. Hmm, that's interesting, I because I have a contrary opinion on that. I don't necessarily want to have a big-budget treatment of these, because the cool moments that I found on the Phantasm series are not about making a logically consistent alternate dimension or giving a fuller explanation to what the spheres are like so much as just the interactions between these three characters over distance and time. One aspect we didn't quite mention enough in that is that Phantasm 3 and 4 become more and more like road movies, Mm -hmm. and maybe even more aptly, like road warrior movies. (laughs) (laughs) Because the places they travel become more and more desolate and sparse and have more of a Western tone than uh, the movies have had before. And I love how they use the older footage. Mm -hmm. It harkens back to 
uh, film I brought up earlier in the podcast about targets, how he uses this beloved horror footage and shows this in a new way. And our disconnection between the feelings we had from the original versus the feelings we have of looking at the original from the lens of a present moment. That feeling comes across in part four for me. Now that I think about it, that's really cool that Phantasm Four traffics in these feelings because that sensibility of people having to reckon with their past and how it compares to where they are today is brought about in a really wonderful context in his next film, Bubba Hotep, from 2002. Now, Elvis Presley did not, as we may have assumed, die in 1977, but he switched identities with an Elvis impersonator. Now he elderly, sick, and in a nursing home, the king of rock and roll teams up with an African-American man believing he's JFK as they battle an ancient Egyptian mummy who is sucking the souls out of the residence of their nursing home. So this is what we call... High concept. <laughs> Elvis and JFK fight the mummy in a nursing home. That is a mouthful right there. And it makes you envision a certain kind of film. Something that would be a lot of fun. Something like when you read a title like uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Or right. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Or <laughs> something like that. But... More in the mode of Charlie Kaufman, whose high concept ideas ah, like ah. being John Malkovich lead to unexpected depths. Bubba Hotep is brilliant. And I realize how odd that might sound if you haven't seen the film and all you know is the plot description and that it stars Bruce Campbell of Evil Dead fame. As Elvis. As Elvis, as an elderly Elvis, giving the best performance of his career. It's also huh. the best movie about Elvis. That's a there, bold statement, man. I'm, I'm going to stand by it because this movie does as many things as the original Phantasm does. First of all, if the horror comedy equation in Phantasm was a little bit leaning more towards the horror, here it leans more towards the comedy. There is certainly a horror element uh, with the mummy attacks, but it's hysterically funny in watching Bruce Campbell interact with these characters, trying to convince everyone who just assumes he was an Elvis impersonator that he's the real Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. And he does this dead-on impersonation that, that captures something about our public impressions about Elvis. 
And then Ozzy Davis gives an equally amazing performance, yeah. maybe less unexpectedly so, yeah. as, a, as a black man who, who thinks that he's JFK and explains that his brains have been replaced by sand and that he's been dyed to look <laughs> that way. Yet he delivers this with such authority that we do not doubt that this character believes those things. Corscarelli has been interested in these fears of growing old, the sense of measuring up to not only yourself in the present, but what you were in the past or what you thought you could have been from your the earlier version of yourself. And as the course of his movies have gone on, these interests, to me, they come across like these different lenses. In other words, you can look at this aspect of phantasm with this context. Or you can look at even stuff like Survival Quest in the sense of an innocent look mm-hmm. at trying to define yourself or redefine yourself. So these lenses, are, to me, are like much like the spheres, maybe, <laughs> are constantly moving. And I'm seeing the reflections in, what, in, in these interests that is being drawn out of these films. When Bubba Hotep comes in, all the lenses line up. And when you get all the lenses lined up, the lights from the cinema screen just absolutely burns through to this astounding cinematic statement. Yes, Bubba Hotep, JFK, and Elvis fight off a mummy is a grand cinematic statement. There's no movie that traffics... In its combination of horror, comedy, and pathos. Often at the same time. Exactly. To an extent that makes you wonder where one feeling ends and the other begins. So you could look at the initial scenes. He's talking about a growth on his pecker. And he's talking about it in a way that's that's funny, that we're kind of mm-hmm. laughing about. On the other hand, this place he's in, this nursing home, it's not a comedic nursing home. It's with people that that are are sick and dying. So we have these scenes where the man in the bed next to him is dying in a horrible way. And then after he dies and, and his daughter comes in, you get this kind of regret because She's throwing out his purple heart, his stuff like he meant uh, nothing to her. And he attaches that to the idea that his family is gone, that he can no longer be in contact with his ex-wife or, more importantly to him, his Mm -hmm. daughter. And he, she also reminds him of the vitality he had as a rock star and how she would have been all over him back in the day. But now she completely dismisses him as somebody who's invisible. And this performance manages to encapsulate the sadness of that, but never loses kind of the Elvis swagger. Yes. (laughs) So he says everything 
in a very Elvis way. Mm-hmm. And so then when you get into uh, some horror elements and he's attacked by a giant scarab beetle, uh, his first instinct is to use his old oh, karate, karate on him. Moves, yeah. We constantly get these little bits of, of Elvis trivia uh, thrown at us. My, mm-hmm. my favorite of which is when he describes the bug as about the size of a peanut butter and banana sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, the way the comic and tragic elements that this movie is working through beautifully informs Elvis, the man and the persona. Because I think Elvis is a larger-than-life figure in our culture in a similar way for how Marilyn Monroe is. Mm -hmm. In a sense that that when you see them you get the sense that they were these larger-than-life icons, but then still somewhere inside was just an actual human being right? that could not deal with the, the, the demands that were placed upon them by the megastardom that was bestowed upon them. And that comparison between the kind of thrills that Elvis dealt with and the the attitude that he had presented, which he which he maintained, it was still very clearly a part of him, even from his earliest albums. Mm-hmm. And the way it's just left in the dust, like those Purple Heart medals. Now, here's an element which I've not seen in Corscarelli is this biting, dark, cynical, absurdist humor that Charlie Kaufman angle that you bring to that that sense of what life passing you by and the weird ways it'll mess you up is so prevalent here as an example in this really perverse sense he has to have his pecker massaged but he can't feel it so what in an activity he would have found incredibly enjoyable and most welcome earlier in his life is this turned into this pathetic ritual. Right, it's humiliating to yes, him. Yes, exactly. But I think some of what you mentioned might be attributable to the fact that this is based on a novella by uh, Joe Lansdale, who's an extremely well-respected uh, horror writer. Coscarelli, up until this point, had mostly written his own scripts or written in partnership. Here he's uh, got some source material that he fell in love with and wanted to adapt. That, I think, allows some new flavors to be brought into the mix. But then there are things that are just purely directorial flourishes that are wonderful, like the way they depict just being in a nursing home. They do it through a lot of jump cuts. People appear and disappear, not not for any supernatural means, but just to show that for somebody who has nothing to do but lie in bed in a nursing home, yeah. time seems, seems oppressive. And what happens one day could easily blur with what happens another day. Right, exactly. It does sort of an inversion or a very interesting twist upon those feelings you saw from the original Phantasm, because it takes the idea of living and makes it into a kind of weird interdimension. Like if you were saying these people were teleported, it would scarcely be as strange, right? Mm -hmm. As living day to day in such a situation and having people appear and disappear on you. And that's why the sexuality of the film 
appears to be a punchline at the beginning, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's actually core to the film's message because he is impotent until he realizes there's this threat and they discover this mummy has been killing their neighbors. And him and uh, the Ozzie Davis character realize that they're the only ones that could stop it. And it's only when he gets this kind of newly invigorated goal that he can get an erection again. So what starts out as a punchline kind of becomes very much the theme of the film is what do we live for? What is life if you're just waiting to die or living in your past? Bruce Campbell sells this. Now, look, I love Bruce Campbell in the Evil Dead movies. He is funny. He's a gifted physical actor. Mm. He's doing everything he needs to be doing in those movies. There is nothing else I have ever seen Bruce Campbell in that gave me the idea that he could deliver this level of performance. Yeah, this, this Elvis has depths to his character in this very strange situation that I have to agree with you, I've never seen in any Elvis biopic mm -hmm. about the guy. <laughs> the Elvis here having to go and reckon with his past and the different levels of both wistfulness about how he has these, these glorious, wonderful moments that are now just lost in time and lost within his own memory and how, like you said, how he has to put that aside to go and actually, to quote the king of rock and roll, to take care of business. Right, right. <laughs> that, now, part of the mood of the film that, that enables that kind of wistfulness is provided by the score. It's this wonderful, sparse, almost Western guitar score from uh, Brian Taylor. Okay. And it sets a mood of dread, but then it also has some repeated uh, comic notes too, that where uh, every time uh, somebody dies, the same set of hearse drivers comes in and one of them is constantly trying to talk about the meaning of life and the other one just couldn't care less. That's right. But the, the way that the, what's funny about those scenes is that they're all introduced with the exact same musical cue right. to show just how often it happens. Exactly. Exactly. This dark wit just becomes so readily apparent in these scenes, especially since as they, as more and more um, dead people pile up, these orderlies just get more and more slapdash in how they treat these, <laughs> right. because it's just so much more of like, oh god, I just got to be getting here tomorrow anyway. <laughs> it leads to some really, really Ferrelli brother just dark comedy as one one dead body literally gets chucked into the head yep <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and then there's these then there's this, like these scenes where like there's a lady in the iron lung and one of the other residents comes in and you think it's to greet her but in reality it's because this person's in the iron lung she can't react as her lunch gets stolen and the culprit is walking away very very slowly and that leads her to become the first victim of the mummy and then we have these wonderful scenes when elvis and jfk unite and make the decision that it's worth it to risk their lives so then you get again these 
great scenes of, of preparation for battle where they actually kind of look like the Reservoir Dogs gang yeah. uh, getting their uh, their crew ready for a heist. Well, I do need to point out that, that, that the montage of people getting ready to uh, go on their mission is something that Bruce Campbell is incredibly familiar with. Good point. Various yes. Ash-like dealings. <laughs> I also feel the need to point out that this is one partnership between the King of Rock and Roll and the President of the United States that works out a heck of a lot better than his uh, than Elvis's real life partnership <laughs> with Richard Nixon. Right, right. <laughs> also, I love that they have uniforms. So when yes. they're getting really serious, Elvis needs to bring out his uh, old Vegas sparkly uh, yes. outfit, and Ozzy Davis brings out his three piece suit, his presidential suit. Yes, and they're like, "Now we're ready." Well. But that's what kind of taking care of business sort of means. And Mm -hmm. that's what that explores is that what are we saying about what makes the Reggie Bannister character so cool is that he is the hero of the story, but you get the strange sensation of him not really being any sort of notable heroic traits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he's just that he does it, right? Right. But these are two people who, in their personas, whether you believe them or not, they were they were heroes they were icons they were the gods of their day and this is how they become heroic and it seem and it shows how you can become heroic in the most mundane and destitute environment possible while not shying away from just the embarrassing and mortifying in more ways than one conditions of being in this nursing home it does give us these moment of straight up glory mm-hmm. from these guys achieving both a heroic stature and getting a sense of purpose. And the fact that the subject they are getting a purpose of is so absolutely absurd, yet we feel this validation of their personas mm-hmm. as their superstars they were and as the people that they really are at the same time it's kind of a miraculous achievement right especially as the mood shifts to horror when you actually deal with the mummy who is played straight there's no humor well there's a there, there's one bit of humor mm. when the the mummy says something in hieroglyphics that, uh, yeah. that's a profanity but mostly uh he's portrayed as a legitimate threat as a really eerie presence that works on a horror movie level mm-hmm. but then you, you have things to to undercut that i love ozzy davis's delivery when he he talks about yes he 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 sucks the souls out of people's arseholes as he calls them <laughs> <laughs> yeah and a part of the just sheer astounding nature of how this movie just brings out all sorts of amazing qualities is that if you think about it, the fact that this particular creature is the monster, is the opponent, is one of the most brilliant examples of a monster facing a theme in movie history. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, what is a mummy? The mummy is someone who was treated as a god in his own day. And he was buried with trinkets. <laughs> and why you kept the trinkets to show how valuable a person he was. But he's wrapped in this cloth. He's dusty. 
and he is a physical manifestation of the discarded parts of humanity. As glorious as we think of Elvis's career, even in Vegas. Right. He can't reach the pinnacle of how, what other people thought of a human being as what the mummy is. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, they're kind of fighting the same version, the ultimate kind of version of themselves. He is a threat to the very things that sort of defined them when they were younger, doesn't it? Yeah, because they risk becoming like mummies. Exactly. You know? they risk, right. They risk becoming like mummies by their continued monotonous existence, but also they reject the idea of behaving like the mummy, which wants to perpetuate himself by acquiring, by mm-hmm. absorbing, by collecting. Right. The, the mummy is an offense because it just keeps animating long after it should because it wants to go and get all this stuff and collect things that's that wasn't theirs. Which contrasts with the Elvis character who had everything, but decided that wasn't a fulfilling life for him and switches identities with the impersonator so that he could find a richer existence, exactly. which he might have had if he didn't get injured and end up in a coma. Exactly yeah. right. This is a very hilarious film it has some really cool scares in it and moves between these tones just wonderfully adroitly but one of the many incredible things about it is that you can actually think about what makes elvis elvis what makes jfk jfk Mm -hmm. what makes the mummy the mummy and right now i'm thinking they have to fight the mummy because the mummy has his persona, his larger life persona, and uses it to take from others. But what happens when JFK gets his three-piece suit? When Elvis gets his sparkly jumpsuit? They take their celebrity and what they had agency in their superstar days to give to other people. Yep. And to sacrifice themselves. That's an incredible work on some philosophical level. It, it, in this Movie that you would never expect if you heard the concept. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a miracle because it's not something you're just going to happen upon because you're going to expect something else. You're not going to expect what you get. And we've talked before about some of the, the best times we've had at the movies is when you're watching the screen and you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that absolutely fulfills that. You you have watched a vastly different film by the time it's over than the film you thought you'd be watching when it began. Agreed. You think it might be this real high-concept lark, and it does deliver on that, but there's so much unexpected depths and feelings, great performances, and directorial touches in this film that... You literally think you've stumbled upon a, a, the, a pharaoh's treasure tomb yourself <laughs> because there's so much riches to be found in Baba Hotep. Well, now that he's heading in these adventurous original directions, uh, the title of his next film seems to promise, uh, again, something quite unusual. Mm. It's John Dies at the End, released in 2012.
David Wong and his friend John really picked the wrong party <laughs> as a Jamaican drug dealer provides John with a syringe of black, seemingly living liquid that they call soy sauce. After accidentally being injected, David finds himself seeing and hearing things that aren't there, as well as gaining the ability to cross dimensions. His attempts to tell his story to a journalist played by Paul Giamatti are also somewhat complicated. Well, I can't describe it any better than uh, Coscarelli himself described it, which is, uh, he said, it's been called a combination of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Naked Lunch. Coscarelli's almost too good a fit for this material, not because he doesn't do it well, but because it very much fits in with a lot of things he has been doing well. This, like the Phantasm series, this movie also has a sense of we don't know what's real and what's not. In this case, because of this strange, bizarre drug that's compromising the senses of our main characters, but also keeping us and that same off-balance level as the Phantasm movies do as to what's real and what's not. Which is not to say that, that some of this stuff isn't effective, but it lacks a little bit of freshness, maybe as a result of having just watched a bunch of Phantasm movies. Mm. This is also based on a novel. Actually, uh, the author is the same name as the main character, David Wong. And it has some real unique touches from a dog being one of the main heroes of the film to monsters that you can only see if you look out of the corner of, of your eye. The lead characters are all right as kind of the slacker dudes, hmm. but to no one's surprise, Paul Giamatti steals the show, even in a role that doesn't seem to have much to it story-wise, he just makes you want to follow him. <laughs> John Dies at the End was kind of a second-choice follow-up to Bubba Hotep. Coscarelli originally wanted to do a sequel that he was going to call Bubba Nosferatu, huh. and it was going to star Paul Giamatti as Colonel Tom Parker, <laughs> who was going to apparently fight vampires of some sort. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's a great, because he's great as the malevolent Tom Parker figure for Brian Wilson in that movie with Paul Dane right. and John Cusack. He's really good at playing evil managers. Exactly. But once again, due to Hollywood's continued refusal to fund anything Don Coscarelli wants to do, this film never got made. Ah, oh, that is a shame. He is quite great in this movie. And I don't even get a necessarily a sense that he's even trying that hard. It's just intrinsically that good. Yeah, he's one of the great character actors we have right now. Because he has to go and have a various levels of incredulousness at the beyond bizarre things that David is telling him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he handles this so well <laughs> with different moments of... Frustration, uh, eagerness, curiosity, and just being absolutely scared. <laughs> Every which one is handled really, really nicely. Now, our two leads, I don't think fare nearly as well. 
And that is a facet that diminishes this film rather considerably in, in, in two different cases. David, played by Chase Williamson, has to maintain this tone of incredulousness in real time as weird things that are way beyond his understanding are happening to him on a regular basis. And Williamson, who to me sort of gives off a vibe like a Will Arnett from Mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live, he handles it sometimes well and sometimes not. Well, when things are very, very strange. Yes. He is one of the most successful people who understands the bizarre nature of needing to put a hot dog to the side of your head in order to talk with your friend. That is actually my my favorite scene in the movie (laughs) because he's originally on a cell phone talking to his dead friend, by the way, or somebody who his friend he thinks is dead. And he realizes that the the cell phone is broken. So he's just like, well, this is strange. Why, Why doesn't this work? And then the guy's like, well, buy a bratwurst. Yes. And, okay, so then he buys the bratwurst, and he's like, okay, put the bratwurst up to your ear. And then he hears his voice from the bratwurst, and then continues to kind of utilize the bratwurst as, the phone, as a phone for the next three scenes. That's right. I think right about that time, he puts one of my favorite lines of the movie, in that he says, tells his friend, look, at some point, you got to have to explain something to me. <laughs> <laughs> Whether he's talking through the hot dog or discussing a negotiation with a the meat-based monster. <laughs> there he does well. His uh, compatriot, John, the titular dead character, considerably less so. This guy is a spiky-haired D-bag who sort of looks like the lead singer from Sugar Ray. And, in fact, sings like him, too. He's basically playing Stifler from the American Pie movie. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Right. If Stifler without any comic persona, Mm -hmm. and uh, much like that talking tree from Guardians would say Groot, he looks (laughs) like a guy who, if if every other word was bro, 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 (laughs) you wouldn't be a bit surprised. Right. And, unfortunately, they both fail equally miserably when it comes to dealing with other people in the film. I think this is a part where Coscarelli was a very poor fit because I've read the book and the book is defined by this very knowing sense of horror history and how weird but goofy things can get and how weird do you have to get so that cynical, mm-hmm. snot-nosed teenagers and their ilk can actually be freaked out. Wong attempts in his book to try and say, well, let's just take two slackers who literally could come across like they've been watching Nightmare on Elm Street, or for that matter, Phantasm series. What would it take to be legitimately freaked out by a Lovecraftian horror? What right. would that mean to to finally freak these guys out? And so a lot of the book is dedicated to these really out there verbal depictions like the like the meat monster we just I described earlier and in a real fun take of the Batman TV series situation where where Batman would not enter a woman's bathroom by saying no Robin that's the one place we cannot go uh, the two characters try to escape from a basement but the very clever demon decides to change the doorknob into a human penis <laughs> which goes well we can't go out that way chum <laughs> So he's trying to push the boundaries, but these two characters 
react to everybody in this super cynical, jaded, hyper ironic way where they've long gone past where they can even tell if they're being sarcastic <laughs> with the things that they say. And that's not Corscarelli. Corscarelli has not come across to me in any of the films he's done, with possibly the exception of Bubba Hotep, as a sarcastic filmmaker and never as a cynical filmmaker. Never as someone who goes, hey, come on, folks. You know what we're doing is bullshit, right? You know this is all silly nonsense. He always brings along a sense of earnestness. Well, not having read the book, I didn't get the cynicism from the film, mm. which may be the point you're making. But what I did get was kind of a lack of engagement from the two main characters, particularly when they cross a different kind of dimensional portal and end up into this world where scientists have evolved animals into technology and they are actually worshipped as gods in this world. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have no particular reaction to this at all. So the concept is like a really interesting one in the way the the Lovecraftian monsters are portrayed, but they're not interesting in their reactions to them. I have a terrible analogy if you uh, want to run by you. Basically, imagine if you made a Hellraiser movie, except Bill Murray was the star. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like he he wanders around the whole movie with almost a drink in his hand going, oh, that's weird. Hey, Pinhead, how do you do your laundry? (laughs) It's, It's that level these guys can't be afforded an honest emotion of sheer terror or even confusion as much as like well there's another crazy thing that happened the movie kind of alternates between scenes that work and scenes that don't Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and so if we talked about coscarelli's best films having multiple dimensions the thing about phantasm and bubba hotep is that they're seamlessly blended and here, it's like there's these breaks. Yes. And so you're invested, you're involved, then you're bored, and then you're kind of back again, yes. and then you're confused. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of uh, of whiplash going on, not for lack of ambition to do something original and exciting, but just because the material isn't really lending itself to this particular storytelling process. Also an afterthought is a weird echo of Phantasm 2. One character is incredibly enamored by a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. And he and there's a there's a great badass scene where he closes his flamethrowing welding mask to show he's made a skull design. And you're like, ooh, that looks really good. And then he throws the flamethrower away 20 seconds later. Yeah, it's funny because that mask has become kind of the icon of, yeah. of this film. As well it and should. it's it hard great. it looks great, it's hardly in the movie at all. Right. I think that kind of sums up the movie for me anyway, is that there are these scattered cool parts to it, mm-hmm. but it's too scattershot and the direction's a poor fit to kind of let, give this kind of irony to the movie if that irony could ever have come about. Maybe Bill and Ted was the most successful use of, <laughs> of, of this kind of subject.
Coscarelli returns to the sensibilities that had interested him through the decades when he was responsible for helping make Phantasm Ravager from 2016. In this movie, Reggie, now older and hospitalized with dementia, can't convince anyone that his lifelong battle with the tall man and his minions was real, uh, including his friends Mike and Jody. Reggie seems to flash between this existence and a dystopian hellscape where the tall man has indeed overrun the planet and giant silver spheres are destroying whole cities. But a rebellion, made up of some familiar faces, carry on the fight. So the first point to be made about this film is that it wasn't directed by Don Coscarelli, Mm -hmm. which normally means we wouldn't cover it, but damn it, we're four movies deep into this phantasm (laughs) thing. We are not going to let it go for the final chapter. So this film was directed by David Hartman, however, with complete cooperation by Coscarelli, who produced and co-wrote the script. You know, Brad, maybe we should have held this off until we get to the David Hartman episode of the Director's Club. <laughs> well, the genie, the genie's out of the bottle. Ah, <laughs> oh, darn it. But you're right. It's a fair thing to bring up in the context of Coscarelli's work because those themes that, I, that we talked about through all the Phantasm films up to this point are really brought about to what seems like a very fitting conclusion in this one. Right, and it has to be a conclusion in my mind because I don't think... They should go further now that Angus Grimm has passed, which he did shortly after the making of this film. And it also bookends really interestingly with the first Phantasm. You'll remember we we talked about that movie being about horror from the point of view of youth. Yeah. This movie is very particularly about horror from the point of view of old age, something it shares in common with Bubba Hotep. Yes, right. Because if Reggie was leaning towards being front and center for the sequels, he is absolutely front and center at this point. In fact, we're we're practically dealing with two Reggies, uh, one in the hospital and one in action movie mode. And especially the, the scenes in the hospital are full of the similar sense of confusion and uselessness that were present in the Bubba Hotep nursing home. Mm -hmm. Reggie Bannister, never going to be an Oscar winning actor, but he was able to stretch in this. I liked what he was doing in portraying these two sides of a guy who's losing his grip on his senses and his youth and himself, and then the man of action that he thinks of himself as. Mm-hmm. It can be very, very cool when you see a film that, that traffics in these very wild concepts and ideas and jo- even genres that you think you kind of outgrow because, because when you get older, you want to maybe concentrate on more uh, prestige dramas or literature and yet there's something about a speech that Bannister says halfway through where he's talking about fighting evil spheres that are destroying cities and mm-hmm. this <laughs> post-apocalyptic landscape that is finally visually revealed in an unfortunate way given the 
movie's absolutely minuscule CGI budget. There's a moment where he, the camera's just facing him as he says, I don't want to just die alone and confused lying in a bed in mm-hmm. this in this forsaken place. I just want to go on fighting. What is it he fight what is it he's fighting in the movie? Part of it is a very strange collection of monstrous elements, but his sentiment about fighting is the same thing of what Dylan Thomas said about rage rage against the dying of the light, done in horrific evil spheres terms. And the same thing Elvis said when he was taking care of business. Exactly. <laughs> now, now, this is not this is not close to being a movie at, at Bubba Hotep level, but it is interesting the thematics that they share. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about the special effects, which I, I think we should go a little more into because there's kind of a good news, bad news element to this. What's cool is what's been imagined visually for this story. Having grown up with these spheres, now seeing them gigantic and taking over landscapes and lasering buildings and knowing kind of their iconography from earlier films, Mm -hmm. it's a potent image. The idea that no longer just robbing grave sites, the tall man has literally taken over the world. Mm-hmm. But like you said, with the budget, it's it, it's probably even less than Phantasm Four. The CGI is is not well rendered, and I regret that. But it doesn't ruin the experience for me because it's frankly not that hard to find movies with better CGI, but it is worth it to see these characters conclude this story. Because the journey of Reggie Bannister is depicted in a way that doesn't require these CGI effects. Right. The movie gets a lot of great mileage out of simply putting him in what is three or four, maybe even possibly five different dimensions of reality. Mm -hmm. And just depicting it as from him moving in from one of these realities to another by using very simple transitions. But it's also very effective because the different realities, quote unquote, or delusions that he finds himself in are all complementing each other. A desperate situation in one environment is reflective upon how he's being treated in the nursing home in another. Mm-hmm. And, and it also echoes the first movie where when we talked about the idea that it could be about Michael's grief for the loss of his family. Yes. And all the other sequels are pretty adamant that the supernatural element is there and this one probably is too but there are scenes where it hints that well maybe this entire series was in reggie's demented mind (laughs) i don't think it ends up there but i think it's it's fun that they allow that idea to fester a bit Mm -hmm. reggie the guy who always wanted to be a hero and Mm -hmm. maybe this is just the way that he finds that uh, he can become one But also, what is very true to him is that he's a wanderer. Mm -hmm. Any dude who decides to run a 
uh, ice cream truck <laughs> at that age is clearly just trying to get his own path. <laughs> and I'm not going to say he's rebelling against the system so much as that he wants to go do things his own way. Exactly. <laughs> and that sense of striving is presented nicely in in five in a in a horror in a horror movie context. The reflections of the different dimensions are done really nicely, as is this very weird sense of family, which sort of includes the the tall guy in a way. Whereas in the earlier Phantasm movies, he was a the eternal opponent. But here it seems he's almost just part of this group that's been traveling together. Right. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not fighting. The, right. the, the the tall man. They, in fact, they bring in some uh, minor characters from other earlier episodes of the series. Uh, yes. Most notably, Rocky uh, comes back, right. and they form this uh, band of rebels. Mm-hmm. And again, in a movie with a, with a bigger budget, this could have led to some pretty epic action mm-hmm. sequences. But Angus Scrim was eighty nine when he died, and to wait however many years it would have taken to get the proper funding to end the movie completely on their terms was probably not going to be a realistic option. As this is, we don't resolve every mystery. We don't resolve every arc, but we do have kind of a cool ending as to the nature of the different dimensions and how they affect the characters because just as it was hinted in, in the earlier films that there could be an infinite number of tall men, there could also be an infinite number of Reggies. We actually end with two Reggies. Reggie on the road, ready to kick some ass and go to war. And we end with another Reggie who is uh, dying in the hospital. And the movie doesn't really tell us which one is the Reggie we've been following all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that way, the film may both resolve and leave things open at the same time. Uh, interesting case of cake having and cake eating. Right. <laughs> I, I want to also say in the multiple roles that Angus Scrim deserves credit for playing two non-tall men in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a fellow hospital patient of a version of Reggie who is apparently living through Western times, and another is a very unfortunate fellow denizen of the nursing home of the hospital in the present day. Mm-hmm. And he delivers both these scenes with aplomb as he does as his return of the tall man. Ultimately... I really like the ending of Phi for a couple of reasons. One of which is that when you see the car driving in the distance and in the ultimate kind of side of a van slash metal album cover, you see (laughs) they're riding towards a hellscape of a city that is being, quote-unquote, ravaged by these giant spears (laughs) that are blowing things up. So into this moment of implied badassery as the credits roll you you sh- show this footage of this team as they are doing all sorts of kick-ass moments to fight off these threats including taking down a sphere of a rocket launcher <laughs> but it's all done in this really really stark solarized saturated manner that monochrome manner that looks like if you took 
pages from Sin City and dipped it in blood. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that really harkens back to the first Phantasm, where once again, Reggie says, oh, here's all this other adventure stuff. Let me just tell you about that. And he just gives you the hint, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But then also, it is a great reflection on what I think is one of the most poetic moments of four. Yes, Phantasm Four has, I think, a great poetic moment at the end where Coscarelli does not do a guy yanked through a portal backwards. But it's an ending that reminds me of, straight up, the ending of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America when De Niro's character is walking off from his past, what he realizes his past has become with his friend James Woods. Another movie about friendship and where it's turned to. And he sees a very festive car from an era long gone that just rides in and then rides off into the distance. In the same way, the ending of Phantasm for Oblivion shows a moment where Reggie is driving his truck and his friend, Mike, needs a lift. So they're hanging on the driver and passenger seat of the ice cream truck and you see the lights of the ice cream truck as it moves off into the distance. Which I find really wonderful, damn it. Because it is a cheesy look at this kind of sentiment of friendship through the ages. Which I think is a large part of what the spirit of the Phantasm series is about. And who would have expected it from a little horror movie from 1979 who just wanted to scare you a little bit. This is the overachiever of modern horror franchises Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people have seen the first movie but i think it's absolutely worth it to watch the entire series it's a journey and it's got some highs and lows but in the end it's a fun journey it's a journey that's gonna make you think taking coscarelli's career as a whole it's really kind of just one pleasant surprise after another. Very well said. And we hope that you guys also had a uh, pleasant surprise through our exploration of the work that Coscarelli has done. And we would like to hear from you as to what are your favorite moments and films from Coscarelli's work and your impressions of what you liked or disliked about our impressions and to do that, you can send us an email at the Directors Club at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in multiple places across the net, from Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, Twitter at DC Podcast, And all of our episodes can be found online, including our previous spooky excursion into the work of James Whale, at our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and hope to catch you on another episode of The Directors Club. Happy Halloween!
Hello. I'm Angus Scrim. Some time ago, word reached me that a gifted young filmmaker with whom I'd worked previously had a role for me in a new film. I would play an alien, he said, and that was all he was going to tell me about it for the moment. My mind raced with the dramatic possibilities. An eager immigrant from the old country, meeting the struggles, the heartbreaks, but the eventual triumphs in the land of opportunity, America. Would I play an Irishman, a Russian, a Chinese? I'd have to master the appropriate accent. Maybe I'd speak initially in another language. Yo hablo un poquito espanol. Je parle français un peu. Bon pour passata, net no crop. The young filmmaker was Don Coscarelli. And the role he offered me was an alien indeed, a sinister tall man from another dimension who plundered small town America's graveyards for dead bodies to be shipped back to his world as slaves. He didn't speak with an accent. About all he ever said was, boy. Don Coscarelli wrote, directed, produced, photographed, and edited that film, which was, of course, Phantasm. It was an enormous success all over the world in the spring, summer, and fall of 1979. It has remained a great favorite throughout the years, and it has spawned a series of colorful, inventive, terrifying sequels. Now, by means of this latest entertainment incarnation, Phantasm is here for your enjoyment. You will be seeing a film that holds a very special place in countless hearts. And know that as you watch, the tall man will be watching with you. Just behind you there, in the shadows.